Christians in Culture. My name is Matthew Stephen Bracey. I'm the Vice Provost for Academic Administration, Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Welch College. Um, I teach courses in Law and Theology. I'm finishing my, uh, my PhD program, also Theology, Ethics, Public Policy. And uh, as I said earlier, I'll be happy when I'm done. I think my pastor will be happy when I'm done. My wife will be happy when I'm done. If there are any questions that you have, any ways that I can help you about stuff related to this workshop or anything else, you have my email address there in the handout. Uh, if you call me, you may not have success. Uh, but if you email me, you should have better success. That's uh, mbracey, M-B-R-A-C-E-Y at welch.edu. <clears throat> I alluded to an upcoming publication from Welch College Press in my last workshop. Um, and I presented on a portion, one of my chapters from that book. In this chapter, uh, uh, in this workshop rather, I'm talking a bit more broadly about some of the material that's going to be in that book coming out August the 15th. Uh, and uh, as you can see halfway through the, the handout there, um, Christians and Culture, Cultivating a Christian Worldview for All of Life. Uh, you can pre-order in the convention hall, Amazon, and there's the Welch College Press website. I think it retails at $29.99, but you can pre-order it for $25 or so uh, here. In a moment, I'm going to talk about the book and its layout and some of the stuff that's there. I've included on the back some, not all, but some of the endorsements that we've gotten, which I'm really uh, quite pleased with. David Dockery, Al Mohler, Ralph Finlow, president, retired president of ABHE, the late <clears throat> Harry Reader, uh, Dr. Moody, Daniel Darling, Timothy Paget. So um, we're really quite excited. It's, um, it's written at, uh, at a level that uh, an ambitious uh, Christian um, can, can read. We intend for it to be used as, a, among other things, a, a textbook for freshman, sophomore level course or so. But what I want to do is I actually want to start a bit more broadly and talk about our uh, theological, exegetical foundations for why we as Christians, why I believe as Christians, we should be engaging the culture in the first place. Uh, what is culture? Why should we be in it? Why should we engage it? How should we engage it? What ought that to look like? So on and, uh, and so forth. So, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I've provided there a few verses. And what I'm going to do for the first half of this or so is I'm just going to work uh, my way through these, these verses. You know Genesis 1, uh, starting in verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness and the Spirit of God, and so on and so forth. Well, uh, over the course of six days, God creates uh, the sea and the sky and uh, the atmosphere and everything in it. And, uh, and that includes, of course, plant life and animal life, birds of the sky, beasts of the field, fish of the sea. And He creates human beings. On day six, human beings, the creation of human beings is a very special thing um, that has both continuity, uh, both similarity and distinction from the things he's created before. So let's start here and look at verse 22. Who's the them here? God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. This is the command that God gives to the beasts. Um, this is the command that God gives to the beast. And the reason I point this out is because part of what I'm wanting to do is I'm wanting to ask what are we as Christians called to do 
uh, and what, uh, as, as humans rather, what do we as, are we as humans called to do and what about our calling from God is distinct? Well, to see what's distinct, I wanted to start with what God said to the animals. And you'll notice God says to the animals, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters. And then again, multiply, let the birds multiply. So keep that in your mind. Uh, then working into verses 26 through 28, we have the creation of man. Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls, crawls on the earth. <clears throat> so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then we have verse 28, what uh, has been called different things by different theologians. I'll talk about that in a minute, but here it is. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. So what God has made in the order of the things that God has made, he has said is very good. That includes what's happening in verse 28. Now sometimes there are commentators, theologians who call verse 28 the creation mandate. Why is it called the creation mandate? Because it's the mandate given at the creation. Others have called this the cultural mandate because there's this, this is, you know, seminar, Christians and culture, uh, because this thing that we call culture comes from human beings being obedient uh, to these, these verses, <clears throat> this verse. There are some, if you venture down the paths of political theology, who even call this the political mandate because this is the mandate from which groups of people organize and there begin to be political bodies. I'm not talking in terms of like Democrat or Republican or whatever. I'm talking in terms of people organizing in the context of society and living, learning how to live life together. All of that is rooted here. I've taken to, uh, I like calling it the creation mandate because it's at the creation, but I, and I see that as a broad umbrella under which we can talk about these other things. So we have, um, you know, uh, in some ways you could call this a, a, a familial mandate, a family mandate, because this is the origin of families, um, you know, just all kinds of things. But in fact, um, in some ways you might call this the creation mandate. In some ways, though, you might call it the creation mandates, because there's actually five things happening here. There's five things happening here. And if you compare verse 28 to verse 22, you'll see that three of them are distinct. Three of them he gave to the animals too. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's something he told the animals to do. But there's two things in verse 28 that he did not tell the animals to do. And, uh, and those are subdue it. What's the it? The it is the earth. And to rule over the, uh, the fish of the sea birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Some people have said, well, aren't these different ways of referring to the same thing? And, uh, and I would suggest that they are not. On the one hand, uh, you can't multiply without being fruitful, but being fruitful is not quite the same thing as, as multiplying. Multiplying comes from being faithful to being uh, fruitful. Filling the earth comes from multiplying. And then as you fill the earth, then you can subdue the earth. And as you fill the earth, you can rule over its various creatures. Um, so God's command to the original humans was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. By the way, the way that different groups of people, if you could trace this out uh, theoretically in your mind, 
the way that subduing the earth and ruling over its creatures would have looked um, from the beginning, it would have looked different depending on where you were. Because the way that the earth is in, say, the mountains is different than the way the earth is in, say, the valleys. And the way the earth is over by the sea is different than the way the earth is, say, in the forests. So different uh, parts of the earth have different ecosystems. Um, you know, you got the fish of the sea, and then you got the fish of, you know, I didn't have sea, the sea where I grew up. I had brim and bluegill, and uh, you, you know, every over, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, what precisely these things would have looked like uh, would have looked very different. And indeed, they look different today. And we see this. So, you know, you, you go on a short-term mission trip, and uh, part of what you experience is culture, you know, and it's food, and it's architecture, and it's just all kinds of fun because the culture is reflective of the place. God made a big, awesome earth uh, from the very beginning, but of course uh, our problem from the beginning is that we actually were unfaithful to this. We, we didn't fill the earth. We wanted to stay in one place, and God effectively said, <clears throat> say after the flood, well, if, if you don't separate on your own, I guess just have to do it for you, you know, after the Tower of Babel and, uh, and all of that. But let's think a little bit more critically about, um, about what it means to subdue the earth and what it means to rule over uh, its creatures. <clears throat> First of all, these are not the same Hebrew word. Um, subdue is the same type of language that later in the Old Testament will be used for priests, the, the function that priests do. This is sometimes you hear the language of stewardship associated with Genesis 1, and this word is where it comes from because stewardship has to do with um, serving another, stewarding something uh, on behalf of another. So God made this world, God made this earth, and he's told us to subdue it. He's told us to steward it. He's told us to serve it in a way, you know, in a delegatory way, uh, in, a, in a way that uh, is, is, is pleasing uh, to him. <clears throat> More on that in a moment. You also have this business of ruling over uh, the creatures of the earth. Sometimes you, you, know, you hear the language of stewardship from Genesis 1, but you also sometimes hear the language of uh, the fact that we as humans are vice regents. Uh, we're not you know, the king, but we're sort of vice kings, if you will. We're not regents, but we're vice regents. That language comes from this, this business of ruling over. Again, this is a, a delegated authority. It's not an absolute authority. We don't treat the earth any old way that we want. We don't treat animals any old way that we want. We do it in a way that is, is according to the ethic that, and the character that God has given. <clears throat> and we do so in the way in which we've been created. I don't want to leave off Genesis 127. Um, so there's a way in which a man cares for the earth. It's going to look a little bit different from the way in which a woman cares for the earth, uh, subdues the earth and rules over the creatures and, and so on and so forth. Because you see that in verse 27, he created, them male and, uh, created him male and female, he created them and God said to them. Um, this business of the creation mandate, you know, sometimes we think about, well, it's the, the role of the family to be fruitful and multiply. And then we think maybe of these other three as, as you know, maybe filling the earth is an extension of family, but have you thought about the fact that, that Part of the purpose of marriage, in addition to being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth, is to, for two people together, to subdue the earth together. Wh whatever that means, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and to rule over uh, the creatures in a way that, 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 that's God-pleasing. So I would group <clears throat> this entire thing 
verse 28, under this, this, this concept of, of family. Okay, so we've got service here. Uh, we've got leadership here. Um, we've got this idea of, of, of servant leadership, which, you know, is, is very much associated with Jesus. We have this from the beginning in, in Genesis 128. We are leaders. We're to rule over, but we do it in a service-oriented way, just like priests care for the people of, uh, of Israel. And this order that God has given is, uh, is good. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So what happens uh, when we subdue the earth, um, when we steward the earth? Uh, what happens? Well, we, uh, we use plants. We um, create medicines, ointments. We uh, work on uh, vegetables, uh, you know, and gather food. We, we feed ourselves. Perhaps we uh, cut down trees. People become loggers. They build houses, shelter. I mean, just everything and anything you can, you know, all the stuff related to science when it comes to minerals and the way that we use minerals today. Uh, this is an application of subduing the earth. I'm not saying that each and every way that fallen man has subdued the earth is uh, the way that God would originally have intended it, but this business of, of taking the raw material that God gave us and using it uh, in a way that's good, all of this is downstream from subduing the earth. And, and a lot of this stuff is the sorts of stuff that we think of when we say the word culture. So what is culture? Culture's buildings. Culture's food. Culture is the arts. By the way, what's the arts? Well, it's all kinds of things. But to take one example, it's music. What's music? Well, it's taking instruments that we created from the earth, and, 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 and putting it together uh, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. <clears throat> Ruling over the, the, the creatures uh, of the world, of course, we, uh, we, we eat, uh, you know, the creatures of the world. We use the creatures of the world. Uh, sports, you know, you've got leather uh, that's used for, say, balls, you know, that we watch, you know, every fall, every spring. Uh, culture. The, the stuff that we call culture comes from this business of subduing the earth and ruling over its creatures. So what I'm saying is uh, we are all, by definition of the fact that we are humans, necessarily in culture. Sometimes people talk about escaping the culture, withdrawing from the culture, and all of that, you know, it's kind of like, what are you talking about? Even if you escape from a culture uh, and you don't engage a type of culture, you're still creating another type of culture by virtue of the fact that you're human and you're doing something with the earth that God has given you. Now, you know that Genesis 2 is uh, another telling of, of the creation, but from uh, less of a cosmopolitan perspe uh, cosmological perspective and more from a uh, sort of a focus on, on Adam and Eve there. I want to isolate two verses here, verse 5 and verse 15. Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to, the translation I used here said, says cultivate the ground. Uh, other translations may say tend to the ground, care for the ground, serve the ground. All of this is in keeping with the previous um, concepts that I was, I was sharing. Um, there was no man to cultivate the ground. That speaks to purpose, by the way. 
the, the word to introduces purpose. What is part of the purpose of man, part of the purpose of human beings is to cultivate the ground or as, or as it was put in Genesis 1, to subdue the ground uh, there. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it, to cultivate it and to tend it. Now, um, if you're paying attention, there is a very close etymological relationship between the word cultivate and culture. You know, I can give examples of culture. I've given examples of culture. Um, you know, we, as I've said, we've had architecture and we've had food and we have the arts and we have just all kinds of things. But at, at bottom, I would say culture is the stuff that man has created from the ground. That's culture. Whatever results from our being faithful to subduing the earth, whatever has resulted from that, that's culture. That's culture. And you see that there in the language of Genesis 2, 5 and 15. There was no man to cultivate the ground, so part of the purpose of man is to cultivate the ground. And then he put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. So we as Christians, we as human beings, are in culture one way or the other. The question becomes, um, we're in culture, we can't get away from it. How ought we to engage it? What ought this to look like? <clears throat> now something I've not put in your handout is a, a rubric that I find very helpful, a, a paradigm rather, that I find very helpful in thinking through uh, how to think through practically anything, and that paradigm is this. Creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation. So God made the world. He created the world in a certain way. You have the fall, of course, and the fall has implicated everything, uh, including this business of caring for the earth, this business of ruling over the creatures. Um, sin didn't simply... Uh, sin, in introducing um, enmity between God and man... Uh, in addition to wrecking our souls, it just wrecked everything about us. We don't know how to quite do anything that God made us to do from the beginning. Mr. Fourlines used to talk about the four basic relationships, and sin, of course, reached and touched each and every single one of those. So uh, sin ruined our relationship to, to God. What did Adam say? Well, it's the woman you gave me. Uh, sin has, uh, has disrupted um, our relationship to others. It's the woman you gave me. Sin has... Uh, perverted our own sense of self-understanding. You know, Adam seems to think that, well, it's not his fault when, when it was, so he's deceived himself. And that fourth basic relationship is uh, man's relationship to the created order. We don't cultivate the earth. We don't uh, engage, we don't make culture, we don't engage culture, we don't consume culture in the way that God would have us to, to do it. And by the way, on our own, by ourselves, we're, as it were, up the creek without a paddle. We're in serious, serious uh, trouble. Uh, Paul says there's not one good thing in the flesh of man. But thankfully, um, God has not left us up the creek without a paddle. Um, you know, uh, while we were yet sinners, God sent his son. And uh, in addition, I believe, to providing a way to salvation, uh, making our relationship to God more right in Christ, 
uh, as one has union, union with Christ, uh, part of being a Christian means restoring all of those relationships. Not just restoring the relationship one has with God, but restoring uh, the relationship one has uh, with other people. So uh, in ourselves, we're not good spouses, but in Christ, we can learn uh, to be better spouses than otherwise we would be. Um, in Christ, uh, outside of Christ, we blame everyone else for our problems, but in Christ, we begin to recognize that we share, well, quite a bit of the blame here. Um, and in Christ, we can learn how to uh, engage culture, create culture, consume culture in a way that's helpful. Here's the, uh, the, the, the tricky part. <clears throat> Insofar as a, as a cultural product is not inconsistent uh, with, with, say, God's goodness, I believe that we can legitimately enjoy those products of culture, whether those products are from Christians or non-Christians. So insofar as food that's good is prepared by non-Christians, we can enjoy those things. Insofar as, uh, you know, I, I described earlier uh, things downstream from science being a uh, product of culture. Insofar as a doctor knows what he's doing, a doctor knows what, what she's talking about, but she, you know, she's not a Christian, she prescribed. We, we can benefit from that and we can legitimately enjoy that, um, but uh, the, the challenge becomes no one, in our complicated world, hardly any one cultural artifact is all good or all bad. It's kind of a, a mixture and navigating these streams takes a lot of wisdom. A lot of wisdom. And sometimes it seems that we, we cross over the line and, 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 you know, sometimes the current just takes us way far downstream and then we have to, you know, get on our knees and resolve not to do it again, pray, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but sometimes you cross the line, you realize you cross the line, and you go, oh, oh, and you learn, you learn better uh, uh, for next time. So it's hard. I mean, there's something tempting and easy about just sort of, swearing off all culture together, um, but, but the problem is we can't actually escape culture. And, uh, and even if we can get away from non-Christians, even hypothetically speaking, the problem is even as Christians we still have this sin problem in our own hearts. And so we still got the problem in our own selves. Even in the culture as Christians that we make, it's still not as good as we would like to think that it is uh, sometimes. To say nothing of the fact that uh, to, to use the you know, uh, illustration from, uh, I believe it was D.L. Moody, uh, a Christian that's not among non-Christians, he's, he's not doing those Christians any good. You know, a boat that, that stays at, at harbor doesn't do any good for the people drowning. You know? The boat uh, has, to, has to get out there uh, in the ocean, in the sea, you know, am among the drowning people. This is a very biblical analogy, by the way. It's the ark, and you have Peter, and later, and he uses it as a as an allegory for the church. Um, but D.L. Moody said, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the, the ship of, of the church needs to be in the, in the water, but, but, you know, God help the ship if too much water gets in the ship. So it's like Christians have to be in the culture, uh, engaging the culture in a way that's responsible, um, but they have to be careful that, that the integrity of the, the mission is not sacrificed. So it's very, very tricky. Um, you know, we could spend a long time talking about the challenges that have resulted from all kinds of spheres of culture that, uh, because they had practically zero Christian witness in them for so long, they are 
really, really lost. Um, and, and, and getting a Christian foothold in those cultures is really, really hard. Really, really hard. Um, I've talked about, you know, culture, and I've rooted it here uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. I've talked about, uh, talked about it a little bit with respect to the fall and to redemption. Um, a few New Testament verses I could pull on. Um, you know, we're commanded to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This certainly has implications uh, for culture. I could point to the fact that, that New Testament authors are regularly uh, engaging, interacting with the, uh, the pagan culture around them, even quoting like pagan poets, you know, in, 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 uh, in Acts and, and in some of the, the letters there. But, but moving to the consummation piece, just for a moment, um, I believe that there will be continuity between the culture of today and the culture of, of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not saying there'll be perfect continuity. I do think that there will be discontinuity, but I think that there will be some level of continuity. And here's what I mean. Uh, so what I'm saying is the things that we're doing now are not in vain. The things that we're doing now are not in vain. Here are some examples. Uh, or, or some appeals. Isaiah. <clears throat> if you read Isaiah 60, if you read Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, um, Isaiah is talking about, uh, uh, among other things, uh, what he's seeing in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's noticing things from his world there that have been perfected. Are, are glorified. So, um, you know, the Gentile nations are coming to uh, Mount Zion and they're bringing with them their glories to the point that there's a book that, that uh, spends quite a bit of time with these, uh, these images by Richard Mao called When the Kings Come Marching In. And uh, he has a chapter called What Are the Ships of Tarshish Doing Here? So think about that. This is Israel. Uh, this is Mount Zion. And in Isaiah's vision, he sees cultural products, uh, pagan cultural products, the ships of Tarshish. What are the ships of Tarshish doing here? There's some, say that five times fast. There are, uh, there's some level of continuity. Um, Paul talks in Ephesians 1 about the summing up of all things in Christ. He doesn't talk about the summing up of, of some things in Christ. He talks about the summing up of all things in Christ and as my pastor growing up used to say, all means all, all of the time, you know. Um, uh, others have pointed out in Revelation that Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Uh, word order matters in the Greek. He doesn't say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. Uh, but here's a place that I would go that, uh, that, that, that makes this point that I really, um, th that I relate to well. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It's about the resurrection body. Um, and it's about, it's about more, but it's, it's mostly about the resurrection body. Jesus' body is the first fruit of our body. And, uh, and Paul establishes the fact that there's, that there's continuity and discontinuity between uh, the pre-resurrection body and the resurrection body. So, you know, you think about Jesus' body, uh, you know it's Jesus. It's the same but it's, it's different. Um, 
Paul uses the imagery of a seed. Is there continuity between the seed and the, 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 the tree and the fruit that's produced? There most assuredly is continuity. Um, but there's, there's clearly discontinuity. I mean, clearly, um, what comes from the seed is way more magnificent. If you'd never seen a tree or you'd never seen a fruit, if all you'd ever seen was the seed and you just looked at that and then you saw what it produced later, your mind would be blown, you know. I mean, as, as humans, we kind of work backwards. We, we start with the fruit, you know, and then we work back and we, we learn the fruit comes from the seed and so it kind of goes backwards. But if you can imagine, um, you know, hypothetical experiment, you start with the seed and you don't know such thing as trees, you don't know such thing as fruit. Could you imagine how, how your mind would be blown? There's continuity. It's, it's drastic uh, in terms of its glorification, but there is continuity. But then, uh, near the end of that chapter, um, Paul says something like, um, I-, I want you to know that your work is not in vain. Um, and uh, I-, I didn't put it on here. Um, I should have. But... Uh, your work is not in vain, and, and, and everything, uh, let's just uh, look it up. I'm sorry. Therefore, you know, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Uh, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Well, among other things, it's our engaging in culture. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's nothing that we're putting our hand to that God has given us to do that is somehow in vain. And in the context of this chapter, um, uh, what we're doing will in some way bear fruit. It's the seed to the tree or to the fruit that comes later. Now here's the thing. Paul does not promise um, that we will see that fruit in our lives. Paul doesn't uh, promise um, that people will see the fruit of our work even in this life necessarily. People may, people may not. Uh, He just says uh, that in the Lord, in Christ, our work is not in vain. Uh, Earlier he talks about, uh, you know, if the seed doesn't die, how can it produce and and, and this kind of thing. Uh, For all intents and purposes, uh, it may look like our work hasn't accomplished anything. It's like a seed that has gone into the earth and has simply died, good for nothing, not produced any fruit. But in the Lord, somehow mysteriously, in the Lord, uh, the God of restoration, the God of resurrection, the things that we do, uh, the, the areas uh, where we put our hand to the plows, God has given us to do it, it it's not in vain. That's a promise. I, I find that to be a very hopeful promise. That's the promise, though, that we have uh, from Paul. And I think that's uh, a mighty good thing. Well, um, so this is a little bit about of a theological foundation about Christians' involvement in culture. Earlier, I mentioned that I would talk briefly about this, uh, this book that we have uh, coming out. We have a sequence of courses at Welch College called Christianity, Culture, and Worldview. And part of what we're trying to do is uh, to teach students uh, how to engage the world around them in a way that's mature and, uh, and Christian and effective and, and, and so on and so forth. And so what we've done is uh, maybe half a dozen or so, eight uh, teachers at Welch, we've, we've, we've put together this book. So it's a multi-author book and uh, it's divided into two parts, 15 chapters. Uh, part one is chapters one through four, as you can see there. 
that's foundations, if you will, establishing the Christian worldview. And part two is more application-oriented, applying the Christian worldview to this area and that area and, uh, and these other areas. So chapter one is uh, reflections on Christian cultural engagement. Uh, President Pinson spends time with uh, Jesus' statement uh, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, as well as some other places. But that comes to mind, Jesus prays. Uh, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them in your truth and you'd protect them from the evil one. And so uh, he talks um, about the need that, that we have of being in the world, but being in the world responsibly, not being deceived by the evil one and being in truth. Uh, in chapter 2, Mr. Talbot, uh, Chris Talbot, spends time uh, giving an overview of the influence of ideas. So you've got Christian ideas that impact the way that we ought to think about the world, but then you have this uh, counterbalance, uh, uh, lots of non-Christian ideas, uh, ideas out there about how we ought to engage the world. And so what ideas have, have influenced our age? And uh, let's just, you know, get before us. What are we looking at? What are we, what are we dealing with? What's it saying? And, and what's the problem there? <clears throat> chapter 3 and uh, Chapter 4 each give um, um, qualities, um, layers about how to think uh, critically through, through all of the rest of the things. So we're talking about principles here. So if you were in my workshop at 9, I, I spent a long time uh, talking about uh, conservatism versus liberalism versus progressivism, and so in that chapter I talk about the classical conservative tradition, and if you were there, you know, I spoke about the importance of our, as Christians, of our submitting ourselves uh, to those who are our elders, our forebears, um, who would teach us the truth in the Lord, and, and about conserving the wisdom of the past and passing on that wisdom that we've conserved um, to, to those that would come after us. Chapter 4, Dr. McAfee talks about this paradigm that I went over uh, just, just a while ago, creation, sin, and renewal. And then part two, we get into all these areas. So uh, what are the areas of, of culture? Uh, well, we have tradition and history in chapter five. Chapter six through nine form an entire section on the arts. Um, and when I say the arts, I mean our world is, you know, you might think about the arts. I don't really go to museums. I'm not really an artist. I mean the arts broadly, uh, music, you know, movies, TV shows, uh, I mean, th that which consumes our every waking hour, it seems. So we have four chapters on that just because it consumes so much of our, our lives. Um, chapter 10 is uh, about labor and vocation. I worked uh, here on this one. Work, our work, our labor, our vocation is very much a part of, uh, of culture and um, in this chapter, I argue, among other things, uh, that a vocation, a vocation is, it means calling. So a vocation is anything that God has called us to put our hand to. So, so some of our vocations are paid. Most of them are not. You know, you're not paid to be a husband or to be a father or to be a mother or, uh, you know, to be a, a good uh, brother or sister in Christ to, you know, Miss Betsy at church uh, you know, to be a good uh, neighbor uh, to the person in your community. These are all callings that God has, has put on us. Um, I also, in this chapter, spend quite a bit of time talking about the fact that uh, pushing against this idea of a hierarchy of vocation, um, you know, 95% of our congregations are just ordinary folks who work in ordinary jobs. And, 
and I think that they can be ennobled. Um, uh, you know, what, what they're doing is mechanics and uh, accountants and waitresses and just, you know, practically anything you can imagine except for something inherently sinful is, is a good thing unto the Lord that needs to be, I think, infused with, with, uh, with meaning. Chapters 11 and 12 uh, spend time with technology and innovation and science. Chapters 13 and 14 are about the state and public life and economics and wealth and poverty, you know, those spheres of culture. And then chapter 15 is, uh, is about another thing that, that consumes our lives like movies and music, and that's uh, sports and recreation and how we ought to think about those things. I've also included, somebody asked me too, about some of the endorsements. I've included uh, some of the endorsements just so you can see what folks are saying about it there. I'll not uh, read those things there, but as I said, <clears throat> we are quite, uh, quite excited about this, this book and, uh, and grateful for the endorsements that we did receive.